السلام علیکم ایوری ون یو آر لسننگ ٹو شی اسپیکس ایکیڈیمک مسلماز دس از اے پوڈ کاسٹ ویئر وی ٹاک ٹو مسلم ویمن ان ایکیڈیمیا اباؤٹ دیئر ریسرچ دیئر لائف جرنیز دیئر ایکسپیرینسز ان ایکیڈیمیا ایریا آف ایکسپرٹیز ان اینی تھنگ اینڈ ایوری تھنگ ان بٹوین یو کین فائنڈ دس پوڈ کاسٹ آن آل میجر پلیٹ فارمس بائی سرچنگ فار دی ورڈس ایکیڈیمک مسلماز پلیز سپورٹ مسلم ویمن ان ایکیڈیمیا بائی لسننگ ان ایوری ادر ویک subscribing to this podcast leaving a review and sharing it with friends and family today we are speaking to dr maha hilal who did a phd in justice law and society at american university in dc she currently works for justice for muslim collective thank you so much for coming on maha and sharing your academic journey with us i'm going to just start right off and ask you what made you apply to grad school So I grew up with two parents who both had PhDs in engineering. So as I was getting older and considering my career options, it almost seemed like a given that I would get a PhD. Oh, wow. Uh, not necessarily in the sciences, but in something. And so I first started, you know, doing my bachelor's degree and I got my degree in sociology and I had certificates in criminal justice and African studies. Initially, I had wanted to go to law school, but that didn't end up working out. So I decided to pivot and do a master's degree in counseling. And my goal in doing a master's degree in counseling was to really be able to help Muslims specifically. Obviously, there are, you know, different religious and cultural beliefs that are often present in a counseling session. So I wanted to gain the skills and knowledge to be able to serve the Muslim community. We need more Muslim counselors, for sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. At the same time, while I was doing my master's degree, you know, what I kept running into was the fact that oftentimes people were coming in and presenting issues of being depressed, for example, that they were facing homelessness or being in despair because they couldn't find a job. And so for me, you know, it was really important not just to sort of tackle the part in terms of mental health and and sort of well-being on a mental health level, but also to figure out what is sort of the macro level structures that were impacting these individuals. Um and oftentimes, you know, I would I would tell myself that the people that are coming in for counseling and are reacting to situations that are like systemic injustices, they're not reacting abnormally. What's abnormal is the situation that they're in. I mean, almost definitely that so much of our trauma is is related to the circumstances we exist in. Right. And so that was the reason why I decided to do a PhD in um, public policy. I mean, the degree is Justice Law and Society, but it was housed in the School of Public Affairs. So I chose to do that degree because I really wanted to learn about the macro level structures that people were being impacted by and that was, you know, innately impacting their mental health. And for me what was important is that I'd come out with a PhD and that coupled with my counseling degree, I would be able to understand both the macro and micro level um structures that were impacting uh, any individual. and i think that that's often sort of missed in terms of both how counseling is addressed and also in terms of how sort of public policy is addressed right like it has actual real life consequences on the ground with individual people most definitely i 100% agree there what was your funding situation when you were accepted to grad school so i was accepted to grad school at american university as well as george mason university 
neither offered me funding. And because I wasn't really familiar with how funding worked for PhD programs, there was nothing I thought was abnormal per se about it. And I assumed that other students in my cohort would be similarly unfunded. Right. But I learned that that was different when I actually entered into the program. So what was the reason that they gave you for not granting you funding? You know, for the first year and the second year, I was trying to figure out what the reason was for the lack of funding, especially because of other students who were funded. And I was one of the sort of outliers in that regard. And the reason that was given to me was that my research was qualitative and the department had a preference for quantitative research. This was never really expressed on the website, especially because one of the professors that I ended up working with and who I actually really um, loved was basically a philosophy professor. So he would, he looks at like legal theory, legal jurisprudence, etc. And so that does not communicate quantitative research. Right. Wow. So that was the reason I was given. I assume that what they weren't telling me obviously was the particular research that I was doing wasn't really of interest to them. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I, I, I do want to get to the type of research that you were doing, which itself, I think, is so indicative of the way that grad school pushes us around in, in many ways. But uh, I also know that your friend advocated for your uh, funding. So how did your friend do that? And was that helpful to you? Yeah. So initially, I wanted to do my research on former Guantanamo prisoners and to look at the impact of torture and detention on their life post Guantanamo. And it was something I was very passionate about because of some of the work I had done prior to grad school. And unfortunately, I didn't exactly realize the sort of the emphasis in my department, which was on national security, but upholding the apparatus and paradigm that like actually criminalizes Muslims. And it wasn't, you know, in that explicit of it wasn't communicated in that way, obviously. Right. It's a very traditional way that national security is looked at from sort of a criminal justice perspective and without sort of regard to who's being impacted and why. And so I didn't have funding for the first two years of the program, which is when you take the majority of your courses for the degree. And so the tuition each semester was probably about twelve, thirteen thousand dollars at least. And fortunately I did have a friend who advocated for me to the dean of the School of Public Affairs. And I was able to get funding for two years. But the two years that I got funding for were one, I was taking one credit courses, both for my comprehensive exams and then to start working on my proposal for the dissertation. So it was definitely helpful and it did come with an a sort of assignment to work with the professor that I was already working with and I was paid for that. But by that time, I had already sort of amassed a critical amount of debt because of the, the fact that I wasn't able to get funding in the beginning. Right. Because, yeah, I mean, the bulk of the payment is when you're taking all the courses. Once you're ABD or once you're in your final, final stages, you're essentially just paying for uh, that one credit cor course that you mentioned. So not super helpful. Uh, what was the environment at your program for your area of interest? I have to say it was a pretty difficult environment. I remember one of the very first classes I took. I can't remember what the title of the class was, but it was sort of public policy and the law and sort of terrorism. And I remember the professor made jokes about Muslims, uh, Muslim men 
in heaven and the oh. 72 virgins. And the class only had five people in it. So I, and I wore hijab. So there was really no question that there was a Muslim in the class. On top of it, we had to read a book that he had written. And there's a section that looked at different religions and what they believe. And I sort of remember how the framing was that, you know, there's no, there's not necessarily a particular religion, religion where people are predispensed to committing acts of terrorism or acts of crime. However, every other religion had about one to two pages describing, you know, basic beliefs and principles. And the, the section on Islam was probably about 12 pages. So even yeah. if that wasn't explicitly articulated, yeah. it was made obvious, right, by the length of the section. Wow. And I mean, just the fact of, you know, the offhand comments that professors often make about, I mean, the, in this case, it's a clearly Islamophobic comment to make, but even offhand comments about how people deserve torture. And it's all like a theoretical experiment to them. Like, would you commit torture to extract information? And you're like, that's not a theoretical construct. That's actually actual human human beings that were doing it too. So were you able to find supportive advisors? I did have one professor who, in my own department, that supported me. But within the, the rest of the department, I did not feel comfortable with any of the other professors. And, you know, part of the issue in my PhD process was that when I was selecting committee members for my dissertation, I selected a chair from outside the department. And I selected him because he was Muslim and Arab. And given the, the scope of my research, I thought that it would be helpful to making connections and inroads to the Muslim community, especially because I was addressing national security issues, which is obviously um, very scary for some Muslims. So that caused a little bit of a problem. I also did select a human rights professor outside of my department. And so I had, did have one professor within my department. So they were making a fuss about the composition of my committee. And because of that, they suggested, well, maybe more coerced, me into meeting with a white Christian professor who was studying Islamic jurisprudence. What does Islamic jurisprudence have to do with the issue of Gitmo and uh, torture? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, everything Muslim is like lumped in together. And right. you know, the, the fact that that seemed reasonable to them is more evidence of their Islamophobia. Yes. I mean, I, I do remember when I was in grad school, people would be like, what are you working on? I'd be like, Muslim political identity. They'd be like, so have you read this obscure person who's written a paragraph on Islam? I'm like, no. <laughs> what, why are you asking such a weird question? Like, I don't do that to you. Why are you doing that? Yeah. So yes, all right. anything that's about Muslims or Islam, let's just, that must be a perfect person for you to advise you through your dissertation. Right. And then I did show her the proposal and she looked it over and basically said that unless I, you know, changed the composition of the committee and or made like significant revisions that she wouldn't be on my committee. And it was very frustrating because it was like, I didn't want you on my committee. Mm -hmm. I was being coerced to include you, but it didn't stop there because she then forwarded my proposal to the department chair and the director of the department. And they all collectively decided that my proposal was of subpar quality. Wow. Right. So um, your actual committee, the committee that you had comprised of actually qualified people in your area of expertise, thought that your proposal was great, that you, you're you going to make good headway, and then uh, the department decides otherwise. Yeah. And to be clear, I mean, of course, my committee, my actual committee was obviously going to suggest intensive changes. And, you know, if there was any sort of 
you know, like different way I should look at the issue or, you know, if I wasn't acknowledging my subjectivity, for example, which is another issue for discussion, they would have suggested that it was in the very preliminary stages. Right. But they didn't say to you that, hey, this is not even a topic worthy of research. They didn't say it that way, but they did. I mean, I think the crux of it was they were saying I was being biased. And so, uh-huh. but the thing is, like, if they wanted to help me, they would have helped me adjust the proposal so that I was accounting for bias or so that I was r- writing it in a different way. But instead, the approach they took was to basically demean me and sort of cut me down. Yeah. And I remember I had to meet with the department. And prior to the meeting, I wrote to him and to the chair. And I said, look, when I wrote my personal statement to gain entry into this program, I specifically said I wanted to do research on survivors of human rights abuses. So nothing has changed. And if this was the premise upon which I was accepted, it shouldn't be an issue now. I met, So I met with the department director. And the first thing he basically tells me is that I sound like a victim. Oh, my God. Yeah, as like if I was a third year PhD student. And for someone that was like made to feel incompetent for the first, well, for the whole entire program, like the, the time that I spent in that program, it was very hard to hear that. Yeah, I mean, how does that even make a, a student feel about their sense of self as a scholar, as a person who's an intellectual? Like, how does how does that impact your sense of uh, sense of self? It was terrible. Like, I constantly felt like an incompetent researcher. I was made to feel that my research was obviously of lower quality and lesser quality than my colleagues. I was made to feel like I really didn't belong there. And this was evident, right? Because again, if they wanted to help me, if they wanted me to produce something which, you know, according to their standards was of quality, they would have done that. But that's not the approach that they took. Right. And this, I mean, I might be off and you can correct me, has this might have something to do with this whole sense of this person is biased and other people are being objective. And I mean, it really makes me question, like, how do you think, you know, a general makes us feel that we're not being objective in our research? How does it marginalize our voices? in that particular way. This topic is really enraging to me because as someone who was constantly accused of being biased, when obviously everyone has a bias, white professors and scholars have biases, Mm -hmm. yet people of color are the only ones that are thought to have biases. Right. And so if you were (laughs) looking at my research and the way it evolved, I, after I had all the you know, drama around researching Guantanamo prisoners, I then had basically switched to researching the impact of the war on terror on Muslim Americans. And so in their minds, me doing research as a Muslim on Muslim Americans was somehow inherently more biased than a white professor doing the exact same research, as if there are no dynamics and biases involved in that research from that individual. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, no, just the fact that you said that in your department, the leaning seemed to be to research national security and the war on terrorism. I mean, if an all white body is researching national security, there there is bound to be an agenda of nationalism, of patriotism that is deeply Eurocentric. And but that is not seen as a bias. That's just something objective being put out in, in terms of American policy. Absolutely. And that was really frustrating because there wasn't any concept of subjectivity and that everyone is subjective. In fact, one of the professors that really made my life miserable 
had formerly been a police officer, had police hats from all over the world because he worked with police from all over the world in his office. And so to me, it was like, you're going to tell me that you have no bias as a person who used to be a police officer and is now subsequently researching policing. (laughs) The only difference really is that some people are, are better at hiding their biases. I'm not saying that was the case with this professor. Right. But everyone has a bias. And You know, if we accept that there is any truth to having a bias, I think what was really the issue was because I had done a lot of organizing and activism, which I also continued during grad school. Some of the stuff I wrote maybe sounded more towards like had sort of maybe an advocacy bent on it. Right. But that could have been easily corrected. Right. Again, if they wanted to help me, which, again, was not the objective. And, you know, there's another thing I want to point out, which is that aside, I would frequently complained about the fact that there was no faculty of color and that there wasn't a lot of diversity in the school. And the fifth, there was a fifth year student who had served as sort of a mentor for me, but it was in a very sort of like paternalistic way. And she got upset once and told me, you know, basically, if you want to see more diversity in this school, you should help recruit people of color. Hmm. And my the, burden response, li- the burden lies on you as a grad student. Wonderful. Right. Also, I was having such a miserable experience as a person of color in the department. So for me, it was like, why would I recruit people to have an equally or more miserable time in this program? Like if I know how this program operates, I'm not going to bring in and be responsible for a person of color's pain that they would endure because they had they came to the program. Right. And and I also want to comment on the fact that you just said that she was your mentor, but in a very paternalistic way. And that is something that I've actually like even hinted at in some of my writing where people treat you like projects and they think they're there to help liberate you or they're there to give you exposure to some liberated culture or forward values or civilization or I don't know what they think in their head but that paternalistic attitude is so condescending sometimes and but they think of themselves as saviors sadly absolutely and there were times that she was helpful but again just sort of the dynamic and it also just felt like I was like the bad researcher and everyone knew it in the department and in the multiple cohorts of PhD students so I just felt like I had that like you know stamp on me right so I mean I want to talk a little bit about white supremacy in in an academic environment I think when people who are not familiar with, you know, with white supremacy on how white supremacy operates, they often think of white supremacy as like tiki torch holding Nazis in the street screaming stuff. What does white supremacy look like in academia and what is the impact of such an environment, such a toxic environment on on students of color? It's extremely toxic. And I think the fundamental problem is that in my department, all the professor mostly white. And on top of that, they weren't acknowledging their whiteness. So Mm. there was no reflection in terms of how your identity as a white person could be impacting not just the research and teaching that you're doing, but also the way that you work with certain students. Right. I doubt they ever had any sort of diversity training, which diversity training is usually crap anyway, because it's basically just trying to teach white people to see other people as human. But nevertheless, for whatever symbolic value it could have provided, I didn't see that happen as far as I could tell. Right. What's really 
problematic is that you have all these white professors and academia is in a lot of ways responsible for legitimizing problematic discourses in other spaces. So when the discourse is being largely shaped by white professors who have particular opinions that are oftentimes racist, Islamophobic, xenophobic, anti-black, that is white supremacy. And whether or not they want to admit it, so long as there is no acknowledgement whatsoever about their identity as white, then it is white supremacy. It's also because you get to not include that fact or you get to see that your identity as separate from the work that you're doing. For me, when I kept asking, okay, like, why is this school so not diverse? And as a student of color myself, who was basically being made to feel like I was a horrible researcher, as a student of color, I felt like I was being pushed out. So it was not just, you know, the argument that kept being made is that there are no qualified people of color who are applying for jobs at this Mm -hmm. institution. But on top of that being obviously completely untrue, when there were students like me who was a student of color, their response was to try to push me out of the program. Right. Right. So the pathway to becoming more diverse was being stunted because people like me faced significant challenges in actually getting the degree. Yeah, I mean, how can you see diverse in higher positions when you sort of stomp it out at the earlier stages? Right. And, you know, I think there's another piece of diversity that's often overlooked, which is that, you know, a lot of departments can say numerically they have diverse populations of students. Mm -hmm. But when it comes down to it, it matters in this case, what kind of research you're doing. Because the students of color that were doing research that was consistent with the values, principles, and interests of people in the department, their identity as a person of color didn't really matter in terms of the treatment they received. It was positive treatment. But when you're a student of color who's doing research that's going against the grain, that's when you face real significant problems. Right. So this isn't a matter of, hey, we don't do expertise area X, Y, Z. It was that we don't we don't want anybody who deals with this area of expertise in this particular manner. We only want people who deal it deal with it in this, you know, in this other particular manner. I think one of the things that you said that I wanted to add on to was this idea that one of the reasons that a lot of white departments do not consider themselves as upholding white supremacy is because academia itself operates under this guise of like intellectualism and rational thought. And so when they do argue for stuff that maintains the status quo, they think of it as an intellectual enterprise. But as you just said, Maha, that this is not an intellectual enterprise. These are actual policies. These are actual research papers that legitimize the way that our society functions. So I think that's definitely absent. But I want to I want to come back to like doing the research in in the particular way that the department wants you to do the research. I myself worked on a paper on on Guantanamo Bay and I don't know, I, I worked for a very long time on it. I have no idea. I just haven't been able to get it published as of yet. I think I've also sort of given up on it by now. But anyway, uh, that's another sad story. Why do you think Americans, including Muslim Americans, we are hesitant to talk about uh, Guantanamo Bay? I think because the government has successfully maligned the people that are at Guantanamo Bay 
they've created a particular construction as of the prisoners as, you know, barbaric. They're monstrous. They're the worst of the worst. No one's violence could ever exceed the violence that they have inflicted on other people. So it's a really, really, really deeply entrenched negative construction of the prisoners. And I think a good comparison point is if we look at, for example, the advocacy that was done on behalf of the Muslim ban. And obviously, they're very different situations. Right. But in my analysis, I, you know, think what is what is interesting and important is the fact that people that were impacted by the Muslim ban were largely constructed as innocent. Yes. And because of that construction, it made it easier to get behind the Muslims in particular, right, that were being impacted and to advocate on their behalf. Whereas when you're trying to advocate for prisoners in Guantanamo, it's basically seen as you're advocating for a criminal. And in this case, these, quote, criminals don't deserve rights. Yeah. There's apparently a U.S. Senate candidate. Her name is Lauren Nowitzki. I, I don't mean to amplify. I guess I'm amplifying her voice. But she posted on Twitter, most third world migrants cannot assimilate into civil societies. Prove me wrong. And then a ton of people on Twitter tweeted their credentials. And mm-hmm. they said, I'm a third world immigrant and I'm a PhD in blah, blah, blah. I'm a third world immigrant and I won the Pulitzer Prize. I'm a third world immigrant and I've done X, Y, Z. And I was thinking, what are we doing? What are we doing? Like we're playing into this politics of respectability mm-hmm. where we are the good immigrants. We are the good migrants who have who have assimilated. And then there's these bad immigrants that we shouldn't advocate for when their human rights are violated in the most violent manner possible. I mean, I understand people responding. I'm not I'm not saying that that they shouldn't respond but it really makes you conscious of how entrenched our own perception of self is on how what it means for us to be good muslims in this country yeah it's unfortunate that immigrants poc muslims etc feel compelled to respond in that way because they're responding to what the dominant narrative says about them and in so doing they are reinforcing and legitimizing that narrative instead of challenging it I would have probably said, you're right, I can't assimilate into white supremacy. <laughs> right. Excellent. Maybe maybe you should do that. I don't know. Look her up and but or maybe don't because <laughs> I feel like her voice just got amplified for no reason. I mean, so many famous Muslims responded back to her. I really appreciate you walking us through your academic journey. I wanted to know if you have any parting words for grad students, especially those from minoritized backgrounds or racialized identities. Sure. I just want to backtrack for one second on the last question. Sure, 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 yeah. Just because, you know, Muslims are always being asked rhetorical questions, like why don't Muslims condemn terrorism? And they're not, the people that are asking these questions are not actually looking for an answer. And so when you keep answering the question and realizing that the question is not changing, then you should stop answering the question. Excellent. I love that. In terms of parting words for graduate students, this is a tough one because, you know, when I went to the open house for my PhD program, obviously the students that are invited, the current students that are invited, are the ones that are, you know, happy with the program, who get support in the program, and can tell you great things about the program. That's what happened to me. Subsequently, when I became one of the students, I was very resentful. I was very angry because of the situation I was put in the way that I was treated. And so people like me were never asked to speak to prospective students because they didn't want someone like me biasing the student or impacting their decision in a particular way. I vividly remember how other students around me were frequently asked 
to talk to prospective students. And I was only asked once. And so I think what's hard about that is just like when you're really trying to get an assessment of the program and how you might fit in. I think if there's a way that you can find other students besides the ones that are being presented to you to speak with, I think that that's really helpful, especially as a person of color in the department to gain, you know, some insight into how you might be treated and what support structures are there. I also think it's useful to perhaps contact professors that you're interested in working with. You know, oftentimes they don't respond, but if they don't respond, that's also something that you can use in your analysis as to whether or not a program is good for you. And I think just also going beyond sort of the visual representation of diversity and seeing what sort of projects and research initiatives are being conducted by different students, even if they're POC, like what is the kind of research they're doing? And are there research topics that are being conducted that are subversive or that department and of the dominant narrative in general? And I think on the note of funding, generally, I would say if you don't receive funding, you should not go to that school. But yes. And it's not just because it's the expenses are atrocious. It's because of the way you're made to feel because of it. And the fact that you know, in my case, I basically felt like I was supporting another PhD student and on top of being already maligned. Right. And somehow that your research project is not worth being funded and everybody else's is. I mean, it damages your sense as a scholar, but also on the financial end of things, the job market in academia sucks so terribly, so terribly. There is really no reason to spend out of pocket to get a PhD when your prospects of getting a job after a PhD, especially in the humanities, are near dismal. Right. Um, Because of my experience, I basically shut the door to doing anything academic. And that was unfortunate. I mean, I wasn't especially interested in being in academia prior to the PhD program. But definitely after, I felt like I could never return to academia. I have since taught as an adjunct professor. And to me, that was sort of like a way of seeing if I could get past the trauma Mm -hmm. of the PhD program and really honor and hone in on my expertise on Muslim Americans and the war on terror in particular. So I have taught a couple of semesters, but there have been times during the semester where I question my knowledge, where I ask myself, am I being biased? You know, where I ask myself, uh, is this the right information to be teaching? Is the selection of the material that the students are reading, is that going to come off as subjective? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, honestly, I've worked through a lot of the trauma that I ended up with as a result of the PhD program. But there are many ways in which it still interferes with my ability to conduct research and feel like what I'm producing is real quality. Well, it is. And we definitely need your voice. So even if you're not teaching in academia full time, I hope you keep writing and I hope you keep speaking out. This was such an important story to tell because it is the story of so many students of color. It is the story of so many of students with from marginalized identities. And I really appreciate you being so honest about everything. Thank you so much. Thank you, Saba. This is really important work that you're doing with the podcast. And I hope that, you know, students can benefit from the conversations that we're having. Inshallah. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam.